Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Every morning at 11 o'clock our time from the U.S. Coast Guard in Boston, which has sort of become um, at least the press headquarters. There's a ton of reporters in Newfoundland, uh, St. John's, uh, doing reports constantly. But it seems like the regularly scheduled updates from the U.S. Coast Guard, who seem to have taken point on communications here, happen at 11 o'clock our time. So uh, if that happens again today, of course, we will keep you up to speed on the latest developments in the search for the Titan submersible, uh, believed to be somewhere in the area of the wreck of the Titanic, but it has not been located, as you know. And tragically, time is up. I mean, that's the bottom line here, right? Uh, we're now past the 96-hour mark in the search for that missing submersible. Um, five people carrying uh, on board. It went into the waters at the site of the Titanic wreck four days ago now on Sunday. Uh, and the deadline to find and rescue the crew has always been set at between 4 and 6 a.m. our time today. That's when the window closed when they were out of oxygen, three or five hours ago, somewhere in that neighborhood. But the search continues nonetheless, though, and there are some experts who have said that, you know, that's not an exact estimate, and if those on board took some steps to try and conserve their oxygen and limit their consumption, it could be extended to a point. How how much? I, I, I don't know. So, I mean, the search continues. More and more resources arriving at the scene, even more on the way uh, to try and find this sub. There's a, a Canadian remotely operated vehicle now on the ocean floor. So, I mean, it's all hands on deck. But just to be brutally honest, it, it looks really, really bleak. I mean, it doesn't look like we're expecting a positive outcome, but I mean, hope springs eternal. Uh, Dr. Timothy Choi is working on his PhD at the University of Calgary Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. He's a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and he is also uh, specializes in this maritime issues, naval issues, these sorts of things. Dr. Choi, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Great to be back, Shay. So I, I guess we hold out hope until the last possible second, right, Tim? I mean, that that's what it is. The, the search effort continues. There's all kinds of people and personnel working, and they will right up until the bitter end, I suppose. Yep, that's right. I mean, you don't know exactly what happened down there. Um, it could be, you know, as bleak as this may sound, perhaps the reason that all of this happened in the first place, because perhaps one of the operators uh, encountered some sort of, a, you know, incident that made them inoperable yeah. and so maybe that helps save some oxygen for the rest of them so you know it's always worth looking um down to whatever the last possible um combination of factors that may lead to them still being alive and, and i mean it's really amazing to watch as uh, sort of this rescue effort or recovery effort depending on how you look at it at this point in time has sort of unfolded just let's talk a bit about some of the equipment that is now in the region in terms of ships there's aircraft i mean and now we've got remote operated vehicles do you know how many different pieces of equipment have been brought there 
there are um, <laughs> there be many, um, but I think we can start by looking at well, you know, there are a lot of assets out there, but how many of them are uniquely useful for this kind of search? Um, you know, we have um, you know roughly by my count, around seven or eight vessels in an area doing the search, but you know, a lot of them are just mostly you know surface type vessels. They're meant for looking at things uh, on the surface, or they're not even meant for really um, looking for things. They're you know for our coast guard ships, for example. The Terry Fox is an icebreaker. It's not a science vessel. It doesn't really have any means of looking below the surface. And, you know, as useful, you know, as long as an endurance as it has, it's mostly in terms of this kind of thing meant for looking around with just your eyes and radars, looking at the surface, see what's bobbing around. Um, you know, for some other things like the John Cabot, uh, another Coast Guard ship, she's a science vessel. She has a vast array of modern sonars on it. She was just built. Um, so those might be useful for some of these things. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you're really looking at this from a similar problem to what I would consider anti-submarine warfare problem. And so the same kind of vessels and equipment you use for that uh, are the ones that are probably most useful for this kind of search, especially if this thing is still underwater. Um, and so that's why in the very beginning, the opening day, you know, the RCP-140 Aurora, the aircraft, mm-hmm. the anti-submarine aircraft, you know, it dropped the sonar boys into the water and those provided, um, you know, a key starting point, at least for research, you know, with their ability to actually go below the different layers of water to try to hear for anything that they might have found or, you know, try to emit some pings to get uh, some kind of a return from underneath the water. What about these ROVs? I know there's one that arrived on the ocean floor at the site of the uh, Titanic wreck this morning. It came off a Canadian ship. Um, what are those? What are those like? How, what's their capacity? Because I mean, you've got to remember, at the bottom of the ocean, it's pitch black. It is absolutely uh, there. There is no light. So I mean, in terms of what you can see and what you can find, do they rely on technology? Is it cameras? What can they do now that they've arrived on the ocean floor? Yeah, so mostly it's going to just be visual line of sight stuff uh, with their own very powerful spotlights, searchlights. But, you know, these things crawl along at three knots or six kilometers an hour or so. So it's going to be very, very slow going for them. They might have some small sonar, but obviously not of the same type that you'll find in a military type vessel. And, of course, amidst all the clutter down there, down in the bottom of the ocean uh, with the Titanic wreck and everything, who knows if the, um, you know, if the capsule, and then call it capsule because it's not really serving a name of actual summary, um, it's hidden down there somewhere, and you know it's going to be incredibly difficult to find amidst um, everything else that's down there. Is it basically and, they just need to almost stumble into it by accident? That's the way it sounds. It's yeah, it's not uh, definitely not easy. I think that's a not a wrong <laughs> kind of a comparison. Um, you know, you can get the best kind of remote source sensing you got is of course through sonar, but you know it's just kind of sitting there now, and you know you can imagine that most of the crew inside are incapacitated, so it's not making any sound. So it's basically just sitting there, kind of like a mine or you know an underwater um, piece of you know floating or not floating, um, you know, junk, shall we say. So many people have said from the very beginning, how on earth can we not track this thing? Why is there not some sort of mechanism, a GPS sensor, a, a, an Apple AirTag, a, a floating buoy they can deploy to the surface? Something. I mean, is that impossible? Four kilometers below the uh, surface of the ocean, can you have some sort of definitive tech that would say, okay, if it's gone missing, we can find it immediately? Or is that just, it doesn't happen? I mean, what's the situation with why we don't have some sort of tracking device? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. 
Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Right, so you, theoretically, a tracking device, a distress beacon is possible, and there are those things on, you know, more professionally made submarines and submersibles. Um, but in terms of detecting that signal, which is basically an acoustic signal, because that's the only thing that really travels through this much water, um, you're encountering a lot of problems in terms of the water itself because the water isn't like a single block of jello. It's not uniform throughout. You've got different layers. It's more like a cake. You cut through it. Um, so at the top of there, you have the warm, turbulent waters, lots of movement, lots of loud noises up there. And you get some, uh, you know, so that transition between that top warm water into the deep, cool, sort of very still water that's down near the bottom of the ocean. And, you know, every time the temperature changes in that water, the sound, um, it doesn't really get bent. That doesn't go through very well, and so sometimes that layer sort of acts as a mirror or a duct, um, and so any sound that's emitted from below or above it, it kind of just bounces off that layer, and it doesn't really get through to perhaps where your sonar is. So a lot, that's why you know having those sonar boys that can go deep underwater at different um, depths that was so very important to have. Um, but of course, in this case, it probably wasn't really sufficient for something like this, um, unfortunately. Tim, how does that? How does the search area get so large? We keep hearing it's twice the size of the state of Connecticut. So I looked that up, which means it's between twenty-five thousand and thirty thousand square kilometers. It's absolutely enormous. We know where the the ship was that deployed that submersible. We know where it went down. It doesn't move. Like, how can that search range be so massive? Yeah, so there are different, of course, swells and waves and um, actually underwater currents as well that they account for, and then those things might push it off course. But, of course, the big part of it is, um, you know, when it goes down, and we're not quite sure, you know, where it really ended up as it went down, uh, where the accident actually happened. Um, and then, you know, when you were listening for the sounds, you're, yeah, you can hear something, perhaps, and we did hear something, and you're suspecting, okay, maybe that's from this thing, but then you draw a circle from that datum um, where you heard that sound, and you're wondering, okay, what's a reasonable range from which that sound could have been, could have came from? But unfortunately, what makes that really difficult is that you don't know what the source of that sound is, so you don't know how loud it was when it was emitted, and you don't know how loud it was um, in a standard way, and where in that water column you are, then you don't know exactly how far away um, that uh, sound source was. It could be, you know, from halfway across the Atlantic, for all you know, uh, made by a very loud object. So gotcha. that makes it really difficult. Yeah, it's really tough. Now, okay, let's let's anticipate that everything goes well, uh, and this remotely operated vehicle that's roaming around down there bumps into this capsule, and 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 they're still alive. Let's be very optimistic. How do we get that thing back to the surface? Do we have the equipment there that can do it? And what is that process like? Right, so it will attach a cable, or it's more like a couple cables, uh, onto it using one of those ROVs, and then you'll 
that cable will be attached to one of these things that the Americans have uh, brought over, flown in uh, for salvaging deep sea items like this. Um, and so this, uh, this thing is a bit complicated in terms of name. I'm not going to say it. Um, but it was used to recover some of their fighter aircraft that have fell into the ocean um, you know, this past several years. So that's the same kind of thing that they'd be using. Unfortunately, because that object is uh, that, that basic giant winch that compensates for the motion of ships, so you know things don't snap and they can drag heavy things up from the bottom of the ocean. Um, but that thing needs to be added and welded onto an available vessel uh, before it can be deployed. So that's taking time to do before they can send it out into the ocean. So again, it's one of those things that really shows you that you know deep sea recovery, deep sea missions. It's incredibly difficult, and it's not for something as you know kind of amateurish outfit like this to do. And quite frankly, it's irresponsible to have to do this about a significant number of backup plans um, that's ready to help recover these things. Speaking of irresponsible, and I'm getting a lot of texts, because we've all seen the stories this week. You know, it was controlled by an Xbox controller. They shortcut a whole bunch of different safety procedures. Um, a bunch of people who'd actually worked on this submersible at, at various points in development said, I'm out. You know, this is risky. Uh, the national organization sent a letter saying, listen, you're, you're setting yourself up for trouble. You're not doing this the way it should be done. Um, I mean, what does that tell us about the way these crafts are built and you know, do we need to have rules as to whether or not people can just take off to the wreck of the Titanic without uh, a seaworthy vessel? Yeah, so I think this is very much uh, going to be a major starting point for yeah. increased regulation of these, uh, you know, what I would call home-built uh, vessel, even though it's slightly more than home-built. But, you know, like, the idea is there. Um, you know, with at least with some of the space uh, private firms, they've got the government looking over their shoulder every little step that they've got. And yeah. that's a major thing because, you know, if one of those things fall down the neighborhood, people will die and, you know, people who are innocent will die. In this case, you know, if you, you know, your thing falls down to the bottom of the ocean floor, very few people are otherwise affected. So I don't think there's the same kind of urgency to care about this kind of thing than it would for, you know, one of those rockets. Um, but, you know, I think this is very much like the Titanic itself, uh, where it led to the lifeboat rules and the safety of life at sea uh, regulations. Um, this might start one of those uh, very need, much needed conversations about, well, yeah, sure, maybe this doesn't affect too many people other than people who volunteer to be on it, but, you know, it does consume an incredible amount of resources yeah. to um, care of. And, you know, there needs to be something in place to ensure that, you know, the likelihood of this happening is uh, reduced in the future. So, yeah, I think it would be a good starting point for that. Hey, uh, one question that I've had as I watched all this, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but let's say they find the sub and they're bringing it up and everybody on board is still alive and, and we've got this race against time because you've got to get it to the surface so you can open it so they can get air. What about pressurization? Did, do you, I mean, we know if you're coming up from depth, you have to go through a certain process and take a certain amount of time or you get the bends, all that stuff. How does that work with this submersible? Can you come straight up or do you need to do that same sort of procedure or else you end up in big trouble? So uh, what I heard is that supposedly the pressure inside is kept at a standstill okay. level, so you should be okay. But of course, that's why we sent uh, HMCS Glass Bay there uh, with one of our Navy's uh, coastal patrol ships to do, to carry one of those uh, mobile decompression chambers, right. the medical personnel, just in case you know there is somewhere in between, um, you know, normal and well, completely decompressed. What a situation. What a situation. Uh, Dr. Timothy Troy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Great insight.